99 years ago today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, one of the most beautiful, prosperous, wealthy black communities in the entire world was destroyed by terrorists. Call them what they are. They were white supremacist terrorists and they burned down thousands, tens of thousands of homes and businesses and slaughtered hundreds of men, women, and children by plane, by fire, by firearms, by lynching, and more. And here we are, 99 years later, fighting the same terrorists who still think they can lynch our sisters and brothers in broad daylight in the open for us all to see. Today, with my mind on George Floyd, on Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Aubrey, with my mind on protesters across the country, and my mind on the destruction of Black Wall Street 99 years ago, I want to teach you a lesson. If you don't mind, I want to teach you a lesson on why history repeats itself. And tomorrow, I'm going to give us a plan. This is Sean King, and you are listening to The the, the Breakdown. The the, the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. I'm actually not a professional Instagram guy. (laughs) And I think a lot of people know me for the work that I do on social media and the work that I do as an organizer. But I'm actually a historian by training. My undergraduate and graduate degrees are in history. And every time we end up in this moment of another black man, another black woman, brutally murdered by police. I feel the repetition of it all. And I think that's a lot of what's going on in the streets with protests and demonstrations. And these protests and demonstrations, they're not just in New York and Los Angeles. I literally am seeing them happen in Fort Wayne, Indiana, in Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm seeing them happen in small towns, medium-sized cities, big cities, mega cities, not just in the United States, but all over the world. Because I think the accumulative effect of it all has really beaten us down. It's too much. It's too much for our hearts. It's too much for our minds. We are, we are ready in many ways to act out in response to it Because when we demand justice, we rarely get it. When we say this needs to stop, it doesn't. And it's put all of us in a position where we feel like we're backed against the wall in a corner. And when you corner somebody, after a while, they're going to respond to get out of that corner. And that's what I think we're seeing. That 99 years ago, one of the most beautiful, brilliant, 
prosperous black communities, listen to me, in the entire world was destroyed by white supremacist terrorists. That's all it was. Domestic terrorism, one of the deadliest acts of domestic terrorism in all of American history, perhaps the single deadliest hate crime in all of American history, as thousands, tens of thousands of people lost their homes, as thousands of homes and businesses were burned, destroyed, set ablaze from planes from above, and people on the streets, men, women, and children were killed, people were lynched, and it destroyed not just Black Wall Street, a beautiful community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It destroyed a part of what would have been a brilliant black future. Like when we think of Tulsa today, we don't think prosperity. We don't, we don't think black brilliance. You might think Atlanta. You, you know, like There are cities you, that may come to your mind, but it changed, it altered the entire future of what was possible for black folk in the Midwest at that time. And it took forever, not just for black America to recover, but to this day, and I've been to Tulsa, I've been to Oklahoma, I don't think they ever recovered. That was 99 years ago. And I want to teach us a lesson for a few minutes, and it's the primary lesson of my book, Make Change, which comes out in August. I wish you had it in your hands right now. It was actually supposed to come out several months ago, but we delayed it because of the pandemic. But God, I wish you had it in your hands. In the book, I teach a lesson that is one of the lessons that I have taught all over the country is that history continues to repeat itself, that we are not in this steady, upward, progressive trajectory where humanity is getting better and better and better over time. I know we want to think that the 60s were better than the 50s and the 70s that were better than the 60s and the 80s than the 70s. That's not actually how time works. It's how we want it to work. We want to think that we're getting better and better and better over time. It's not how time works. Instead, time is cyclical, where sometimes we are getting better, other times we're getting worse, and we repeat the patterns of progress and pain, progress and pain, progress and pain. We get better, we may take two steps forward, but then the world takes multiple steps back. If we were getting better and better over time, think about this. Let's say human beings have been alive, let's give it a round number, for 10,000 years. If human beings have been here for 10,000 years, the transatlantic slave trade took place 400 years ago all the way to the 1860s. Like, it took place in the last 1% of human history. How do we explain if human beings are getting better and better over time? How do we explain the Holocaust? How do we explain Rwandan genocide? How do we explain the famine and war in Yemen? How do we explain 
the rise of mass incarceration? How do we explain the explosion of police brutality? If human beings are getting better and better over time, that means we've had 10,000 years to do this, and we should be so good that there should be virtually no evil. We explain it because that's not how time and history actually unfolds. Instead, human beings seem virtually incapable of learning real, hard, sustainable lessons from the past. And so we see painful things that happened 99 years ago, that happened last year, that happened last month. We see them repeating themselves over and over and over again. And I need to explain to you why that is. It's because on a psychological, sociological level, human beings make decisions out of their values. So in 2020, when a police officer has to make a decision, they don't think about Eric Garner. They don't think about Amadou Diallo. They don't think about Tamir Rice or Breonna Taylor. They don't think about 2014 or 2015. They don't think about uh, Freddie Gray. They make a decision. And let me, let me, let me even be more specific. You and I make decisions out of our values. Our decisions emanate out of a place of value, of principle. Who do you value? What do you value? That determines your decisions, not history, not the lessons from history. Now, if you value the lessons from history, Maybe what happened in one of the thousands and thousands of police shootings or deaths or moments of brutality, maybe that informs the decisions you make. But if you don't value history, and this is where the rubber meets the road, if you don't value black people, the decisions you make and the decisions you avoid making will reflect the fact that you don't have a value for black people in your heart, in your mind, in your ethics, and the decisions that you make or refuse to make come out of that place of a devaluing of black life and black people. So when we say black lives matter, which is a phrase we never should have had to say, when we say black lives matter, it's because we are constantly faced with people and systems and institutions that don't treat black lives like they do. Do you hear what I'm saying? And so when a police officer hears Brother George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, get off of me. When they hear George Floyd say, I'm dying. When an EMT, not an EMT who was on the scene, but but someone who just happened to be there, when George was dying, checked his pulse and said, listen, he doesn't have a pulse, and they continue to remain on him. It's not just that they are repeating history as it was done with Eric Garner. They are literally just making decisions that come out of their value system. They don't value black life. If they did, they'd have got up off of George. If they did, they probably never would have been on him in the first place. 
You've heard me say this before, but I always try to replace George Floyd with some white man or woman of privilege. And to understand the injustice of it, I just ask myself, would they have done that to fill in the blank white person of privilege? Would they have done that to to somebody of means who is white, period? Would they have done that to a famous white person? Would they have done that to, to any white woman? Would they have done that to any white man? And I began to interrogate those questions. And when you look at what they did to George Floyd for nearly nine minutes, including nearly three minutes after he was either dead or completely unconscious, and ask yourself, would that have been done to anybody white? I don't think there's a single person in America who will say yes. And it's because they made a decision from their value system. We are up against people whose values are disgraceful, whose values and principles and ethics are disgusting and bigoted and racist. And you don't have to be a police officer or a person who uses force to have problematic values. But some of what I've been trying to talk about here, even over the past week, is that your worldview, your philosophy of the world. And you may say, well, shit, Sean, I don't even know that I have a philosophy. We all have what I would call an operating philosophy. You might not have written it out and saved it in a Google document, but the way you live your life, that's your operating philosophy. The way you see the world, whether you spell it out or not, that's your operating philosophy. And what we are learning is that in 2020, the operating philosophy of so many people looks just like it did 99 years ago in Tulsa. Whether they are killing us from planes or fires, that Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd were, were lynched as if it was Tulsa, as if it was 99 years ago. It might as well have been. In fact, we have now more people killed per year by American police than were lynched per year all the way back to the early 1900s. That's where we are right now. We are in that period of American history where the number of unarmed, nonviolent black folk who are killed by police rivals the single worst years of lynching which takes me to our action steps for today. Tomorrow, which is Tuesday, I'm recording this on Monday, but you could be hearing it anytime. Tomorrow, we are launching the Grassroots Law Project. Now, unofficially, we have been working and organizing with the families of Ahmaud Aubrey and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, and we have had over 6 million people sign up and participate and make phone calls and do all types of actions with us. And we are still fighting for justice for Ahmaud Aubrey. We're still fighting for justice for Breonna Taylor. We're still fighting for justice for George Floyd. We're still fighting to save the life of Rodney Reed. We're still fighting to free Chris Kearney. 
we're still fighting to to do good work all over this country. But now the Grassroots Law Project needs you. Tomorrow, we're asking you to sign up to become a volunteer, to become a backer, a donor, a supporter. We're going to have practical ways that you can get on board. We're going to have a plan, a policy plan, and a plan of action. And we need all hands on deck. Tomorrow, Tuesday, you're going to be able to go to grassrootslaw.org and check it out. Listen, I've got to run. We're prepping for that launch. We've got a lot to do. History repeats itself because the values don't change. I hope you caught that point. Tomorrow, we're going to change how we respond. And we're also going to point us in a way that's proactive and not just reactive. Make sure you're following at Grassroots Law on Instagram and prepare to meet us tomorrow at grassrootslaw.org. Take care, everybody. Break it down. The, the break, 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 the break